Hi, it's Sash. This show is a little bit more than an hour, but it was a really fascinating discussion, and I hope that you'll enjoy listening as much as we did recording. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Sash, here with my lovely co-host, Frasley. Hey, it's good to be back here, Sash. And I feel like we just talked to each other last today. <laughs> yeah, it seems like we just talked. And together, we'll be exploring everything about being transgender and other stuff. How are you, Frasley? I'm doing really good. And especially this week, I uh, got a switch and I've been up like Emma Crossing. Oh, my, oh my God. God. It's so cute to watch you play. It's hilarious. It's fun. It's fun. And especially next Thanksgiving, I won't be able to join the family. So I'm going to be enjoying Turkey Day, which has been just been announced for Emma Crossing. That's true. I'll have to get in there. I still haven't turned on my switch, which I have all these decals on it. I have the decal set from Animal Crossing. So you'd think I would actually be playing, but I'm not. It's so much so, fun, and they're adding new stuff. Like you could look at your catalog on the nineteenth. I can just keep going on, but this is not the Animal Crossing podcast. I I got burned out on turnips. That that was my okay. Fault. Yeah. So we also have a fabulous guest this week, Tara. How are you? Good. How are you? Oh, well, you've already introduced yourself. Oh, reflexes have already starting. I'm doing Uh-oh. good. Um, <laughs> it's the end of the semester, so everything is oh, going yeah. haywire, and I'm on peak ADHD, but I have a therapist tomorrow for the first time after a year of searching, so nice. I'm excited. For I'm you. crashing. I'm stressed. I'm crunched. It's the whole nine yards. And awesome. This year, I, I, I can I bet, like, I've been stressed this whole year, like, on so many different things, and yeah, like, I think this year... Everybody should get a pass on a lot of things because of just how, like, how much energy is out there, how much chaotic is is out there. Funny enough, this year has actually probably been net benefit for me compared to other people. So, like, I was able to somehow feed on the chaos and get a oh, get a bunch I, of good things. So, like, I got my first publication as an out trans woman. I wrote the article while I was questioning, but at the conference we run the award. And I'm doing slow conversations to start talk to everybody. So it's that married, started HRT, um, went out to my university. Everybody knows about it. Came a mod for a server where I've become the the witch trans grandma for everybody in that server. Nice. Um, got a couple of not not publications, but made a game for COVID that got big for my uh, research lab. Okay. I've basically designed my dissertation, which might be what I end up talking about here. I've I'm basically ahead. I'm a third year trapped in a second year body in my program, so I'm a uh, I'm very far ahead, and it's weirding me out because I'm being productive. That's <laughs> a good thing. Terrible yeah. year. Yeah. It's stuff that like this year you'll look back on and be like, okay, so even though a lot of the 2020 was shit, you'll have things like that were amazing and remember from this year. Yeah. I'm just being a big old stress ball. Job stuff has has basically dried up. There's like nothing because it's the end of the year. And I'm just a little crazed. I mean, we'll be okay until like the beginning of next year, but after that, it's like we're gonna run out of money, and I'm a little freaked out. And I was hoping yeah. not to run out of money. I was hoping to have savings, but but it's it's dissipating, even though we're trying not to spend any money. So uh, so that's not great. But whatever. On with the show. So Tara, tell us all about you and what you do. So I am a PhD student at the Georgia Institute of Technology studying 
in digital media, and I'm specifically looking at transgressive narratives. And even though trans is in the name, it's not that trans yet, though we'll <laughs> get there. Um, essentially what I... Uh, before that, though, I am, as I've mentioned before, trans, ace, I'm more of the gender flux, girl flux, gender fay, there's a lot of terms for it, um, non-binary individual. 2020 was when my egg cracked, very specifically remember having to deal with a bunch of bull bullshit, and uh, my now wife, uh, we were talking about it, my egg cracked, and it was like, January figured it out, March started estrogen, and so... That's part of the crazy thing. I'm also neurodivergent, uh, diagnosed with ADHD. Um, not inattentive or hyperactive, but combinatory. So I don't sit and stare at clouds and I don't hyper, hyper ping across everything. I do everything. So if I ever take the tests, I check every box. Um, I'm also self-diagnosed ASD, thanks to some of the people in a trans discord I'm in and having my wife go through and experience one of her first existential angst of her lifetime um she realized she's probably asd um will probably never get diagnosed um her brother is asd but never got an official diagnosis from her family and it runs through her family like a nice streak of in the wood so we're both potentially asd it makes a lot of sense for things i'm on um I, I've been through. I also have just a whole string of horrific backstories that make, basically makes me an anime protagonist. You know, homeless twice, abusive families, was in a fraternity house. You know, <laughs> all types of. Well, was is my I have a cult in my family. Um, raised in a evangelical Southern Baptist church from daycare oh. to eighteen. So, you know, I have a lot of stuff I've been through that kind of informs some of the weird stuff that we'll probably get talking about here if we stay on track with talking about my dissertation research. One question question I have because I think you and I may have a similar background, especially in that when you said evangelical, you you uh, kind of uh, talk about where where my uh, childhood faith came from. What was the reception from your family? Oh, I haven't talked to my family in 10 years. Okay. Um, I got lucky in that I, at 25, part of the anime backstory. Um, I picked up tabletop role-playing games when I was undergrad, about 2010. Got interested in them, 2011, 12. Started actually participating in them and being in a podcast and stuff like that. And I graduated from undergrad. I was taking master's degree courses at my home. And the fact that I'm from a name and a type of abuse, my family did it. Not to the extent of being charged in a trial, but like indicted on character instead of evidence. Um, and so by the time I was 25, I just literally sold everything I owned and flew to Oregon to be with a dear friend. Um, that friendship had a falling out due to ASD stuff, but I haven't talked to them in so many years. So if they know it's through social media, but we do not have contact anymore. And I, I, I hope that you've been able to find a new, like chosen found family and that. Yeah, it's, it, it comes and goes. It's part of the ADHD, ASD issue of like, I have deep friends, but I will not talk to them for six months to a year and then come back, act like nothing's changed. And then they're Same. like, I haven't talked to you in a year. What's going on? Like, <laughs> yeah. I just, 
I've been working. I didn't. I now need to talk to you and catch up. But like that was not forefronted. Thus, it was not real. Now it is. So, eh. Um, the Discord has really helped with that with a bunch of these uh, neurodivergent uh, discords, the a trans discord I'm in, and some loose discords that are affiliated with my research. So there's an ace tabletop role-playing game. There's a general tabletop role-playing games. There's some uh, personal servers of some friends of mine. There's some conferences that have now moved online that I use as like a sounding board to talk to people. And my yeah, cohort. it's amazing what has moved online that used to be, like, always in person. Yeah. And now they're actually easier to attend for people yeah, like me who can't stand to be with other... Like, I hate going places where there's people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been really interesting. There's a big... There's a bit of a pushback from, you know, revealing the academic curtain. Like, it's two to three hundred dollars to go to these things. Two or three hundred pounds. It's like... Right. Why does it cost this if we don't have to room board lodge anymore? Yeah. So there's this there's this tension now of like, will it stay this way? And if it does, will it be cheaper? Because, you know, I can get up and stay at home in my PJs and not cut my camera on. And I can save a couple hundred dollars and the university can save a couple hundred dollars and get benefits because of all the connections we're making. And we're not having to use these grant research funds except for the minutia amount for like registration instead of for travel. Yeah, all my professional conferences are also not free, which I don't get, but some of them are less expensive and some of them are at least easier for me to contemplate attending. Because the thought of, like, I don't mind traveling, but flying across the country, particularly in a pandemic, it was not going to happen anyway. But I mean, sometimes it was just like, oh, I could imagine attending the conference but I couldn't imagine paying for the travel. So to some extent, it's a little bit easier now. Yeah, like the one that I was make, make, making an annual thing after my first BlizzCon last year was was, was BlizzCon. And I was saving up the, the, the funds for the, this BlizzCon. And I'm like, there's benefits that I was able to use that money toward other things. Like I was able to apply it toward like a savings for the future. I was able to apply it for some of the things I needed to do personally. So it was... There's some benefits. Like I get the fellowship, the com the communication. I I do miss that part. But the room and board is fucking expensive. God, yeah. And traveling is just and traveling, yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's been the weirdness of this this and like it's been interesting to see. One of the big things is like there is there there's typically a slush fund that students get in the upper academias to spend on weird research. That's where I buy some of my more bizarre book purchases or plan to before it got yanked so there's there's a lot of things about covid that academia is too slow and too plotting to kind of address properly and it's the job of the professors and the researchers to act faster than it can react in hopes of keeping it manually dragging it up to date yeah i it is kind of funny that you would think that school, particularly when, when we're talking about higher institutions where there's research going on, you would think that they would leap to be innovative, but a lot of times it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a leap in innovation, but it's typically guided through self-starting professorship work. Like I said, my uh, this summer, my GRA is with the uh, the Digital Integrative Liberal Arts Center, the DILAC Lab. 
Um, and we spent the entire summer making COVID games to teach people about things. And that was part of a slow jam that then became based just off an Indicate game that became based off, that was then used by Indicate and NSF to start a grant that then got us into a write-up that then got us into an LA Times article. And that is now being used to continue it and part of the programs at Georgia Tech, like the custodians, are talking and then trying to figure out if they want to use the basis of that game to showcase what it's like to be a janitor and the, the COVID. And the, these small initiatives were all started by the professor kind of making us do some research on things that as a deeply empathic person I didn't want to deal with as, you know, in my summer, but it worked out. I got a lot of research. I actually wrote a thousand, a thousand words on it. We're trying to cobble together a design document based on designing for discomfort in education and using some of that queer art of failure that I might get into later by Jack Haberschlam as like the ideal way of teaching people in games instead of rewarding them for winning, letting them fail and learn from their failures. Interesting, because like, does that go into like video games as well, that I, that design type? Yeah, um, I, so my, seg, um, <laughs> my, uh, my research is on transgressive narrative, but I'm kind of a transmedia, uh, researcher by accident. I study film, I study books, tabletop role-playing games are my point of contact for my research and kind of how I'm known, but I also play video games, watch streamers, um, read books, go to plays when I have the opportunity, stuff like that. And a lot of the research I do looks at the design methodologies, follow these and see how they interbreed and crossbreed. So like when I am designing a video game, I might not design it similarly based on what I was trying to do. So this is an article we'll get that we're currently writing up, but like a lot of educational games that come out of academia are simulations. You're simulating a life. So there's a board game that came out. Well, there's a four player internet experience called Essential Worker. It's based off board games, but it felt like a simulation of a board game. It's a first pass. It's missing some things. I don't quite agree with some of the things that they produced, but it did reward and it is influential. Um, our games went radically different though, because we wanted to emulate culturally understood mechanics and feelings in a teaching environment. So we were like, how do we teach people the microscale decision-making that affects them in COVID, but also letting them be aware that higher level policies such as the state or the store still affects their chances. We're like Pac-Man, uh, grocery store is a maze. We're gonna go through this maze and collect things. All right, well, it's a horror game because COVID is a horror game, especially for low income minorities and others that are stuck in things. So we need to make this horrific. How do we do that? Well, let's pressure the cognitive load of the user by having a shopping list that they can't see that they have to pull up and hide the screen, that they only have a vision cone that they can only see in front of them, that there are people in the store that might be sick, that might not be sick, and you can't visually see it. You have to explore to find the items. There's a time limit. Um, and all of these things that put constant pressure on the user so that if they fail, they can go back and try and learn how to do things better. And also teach them that statistic, people are terrible at statistics because if you're 30% to get sick, does that mean after a third time you get sick? That means potentially the first time you get sick or potentially the 50th time you get sick. So we combined all these into this little game called Dinosaur, 
Uh, you can look it up, it's on itch.io. Um, you play as a tiny little dinosaur going and shopping. Currently this semester we're expanding that out so it's a little bit more robust than a single level. And it ended up getting a lot of accolades because it's not a simulation game. It is just a game. You're just playing stealth action Pac-Man. And I'm really happy with what it came out. It's not as horrific as I remember it or as I wanted it, but I'm also big into the horror. When people finally got their hands on it and played it, they were able to play it four, five, six, seven times and finally learn like, all right, this is where I can move through. This is how I can find an optimal path. And they're like, this replicates the feelings of it. And as I can see this, when you have multiple levels that are like, this needs a mask, this needs orientations on the floor, this has a limited number of people that can show how this impacts your gameplay. Yeah, and uh, you know, I honestly haven't been in a store since March. Yeah, so, I... so we, my, I think it would be horrific for me to even like open this game. Yeah, my my wife is high risk. Her entire family is high risk, and we've also worked at a grocery store before we went to schools. Came here for school, so we understand that. So I've been shopping since it started um and she's only recently now got out we got some very nice masks from a cohort member who's from korea so they got us the korean kn95 and like an entire dozen of them so she now feels safe safer to go out though that might change yeah recently um but yeah i've been out and i'm trying to part of the research that i didn't mention is the difference in design philosophies that we inadvertently copied from the CDC. The CDC has three design philosophies. You have the positive, the negative, and the neutral. Positive is if you do this, you might not get sick. If you do this, you will get sick. And neutral is this is what happens when you get sick and how it functions. And so a lot of the games that were being made are viewed from this positivist or negativist perspective of like, if you do this, you won't get sick. Yay, happy everyone. Or do this, you get sick, you're fucked. Um, that's kind of what the essential workers boiled down to is it's a collective, it's a collective experience. If one person fails, the entire person fails. Like the system is designed for failure and ours is very neutral. It's like, this is what it's like. You will fail. The system is designed for failure overwhelmingly and I'll lighten it up a bit because people don't like failure too much, but overwhelmingly just providing the exact details that we understood giving them the game and going, this is what it's like out there. Learn from this so you can use that knowledge to better succeed and help others succeed. One thing that I find fascinating and, and what you, like when you talk about like with this, like the systems, I did a very, it was a very undergraduate paper. It was for writing, but it was one of, on trying to like say why video games are good for kids. And one of the things that came up in my research was that like kids that learn from big games about failure and how to take failure and, and learn from that, do better from what, what I was seeing. And and, and, I, and I like this idea that of the game that you are set out to fail, but to get better at it. Yeah, that's, um, that is a big, sorry, I'm pulling up a book for you guys. I need to read as well. I will not claim to be the um, best at queer theory because I am still trying to get my foundational works, but Jack Haberslam, God, I hope, yeah, ha Haberstam, excuse me. Uh, has a book on queer art of failures and talks about queer theory and how looking at the act of failure as beneficial is both a queering of traditional heteronormative capitalistic perspectives and also very intrinsically queer 
And so this is one of those things of like Dark Souls you learn from failure. Um, some of the more horrific games that I play, uh, Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, the ones that I base my research on are all designed around failure. It doesn't matter if you've succeeded on a roll, the rolls you failed are the ones you get experiences because you don't want to fail the next time you want to get better. And this desire, this learning from failure perspective is very interesting and it's kind of this tension because everyone wants this view of gamification as this constant mmo feedback skinner box looping actually i have that book i need to read that book as well i have so many books i need to read um adhd all over the place don't worry about it um i figured a, there i i i'm diagnosed adhd so <laughs> yeah there, there's a book on addiction by design that talks about the addiction of machines in Las Vegas, and it was picked up, and it's what Skinner boxes and Moe's have talked about. And then there's a big tension of like, do you design for positivist feedback that makes people go for the treat, or you do for a failure where they learn from failing, but failure never feels good, so you don't want to discomfort the user. And it kind of has to find this fine tension and this fine perspective of like, you might be able to have some positive, but you might also need failure. And there's this big design discussion to go through. I, <laughs> I don't know a lot about game design and game theory, so... I'm also uh, not a game researcher. I, I want to point this out, because I, I do narrative. I talk a lot about games, but I don't agree with game design. This is going to be a hair split for anybody without it. Um, part of queer theory is looking at heteronormative or current frameworks in design and queering them from a perspective of traditionally queer outsider's perspective, but also just looking at the frameworks and, and just injecting in new ones. A lot of what I'm seeing in like my interactive narratives is the attempt to make interactive narratives game-like, but not games. And what I'm focusing on is this idea of play that was foundational to game designs to make them their own study that then ran off into this idea of games. And I'm like, no, everything is play. A game is a rule set you're putting onto play. A narrative is play in that there is a one direction, sometimes multi-directional if it's interactive. And so a lot of my designs come from viewing things as play and narrative and knowing enough about game design to go like, all right, this is what game design would want, a Skinner box, an endless runner, some type of easy, quick candy game. Here's what a narrative would be, some type of plotting, existential, deep, long introspective thing i am going for play which is the middle ground between these two and cherry picking and stitching these two together and i think that is some of my most fun is that that middle because because i was just yeah. talking about i'm thinking about games that, that that do that like my one of my main games is wow which i know is probably that that that, that one but i also I have will been judge finding... you too harshly <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> But I've been I've been branching out into like other games, and I like that the the middle where like you're getting a story and you're learning stuff, and I like that there is that that like you have you have a choice that that matters, and the choice can affect what's going on. Yeah. And this is why tabletop role playing games are kind of at the middle of my research on my dissertation, which we still haven't gotten to, because it is this nice middle ground. You know, tabletop role playing games are viewed as these interactive, co collaborative, co creative experiences 
but they have found and formed a spectrum from their original initiation as war game simulators that then became personalized around the generals that then became personalized around the characters. Those games still focus on the rules, the crunch, D&D, but we've seen people scrape those away to become more narrative-based, fudge the rules, rule zero, the idea that the GM controls everything versus, you know, you can ignore the rules, all the way to these games like Fiasco, like roll the dice and figure out what the story is going to be, make the story, which usually fails because Fiasco is a difficult game if you're not used to improv. Oh, and now that we have this Spectro, I'm looking at it and going like, well, this, this medium itself is the parent of video games. It is yeah. the descendant of theater, which is yeah. the descendant of books, which is the descendant of all this other stuff. What does this unique perspective provide us? And I'm looking at the nature of play and agency and kind of theorizing this third leg of agency between embodiment, immersion, and my one. And the, the long story short, immersion is you become the character, you are one-to-one, -one, you emotionally resonate to the point that you are the character, and embodiment is you ride them like an avatar. You're a jellyfish in a digital meat suit instead of an actual meat mecha. And what I'm talking about are games that transgress the fourth wall and actually have Sash, Fazly, they talk to you and have you interact because your agency in it your interactions, your actions, your designs are as important to the narrative as anything else. So y even mentioning your, your dissertation and, and, and you said like, like th this feeds into that, right? Into what, what you're mm -hmm. currently working on? Yes. Um, I'm still not qualified. Have, I have quals next semester, which means after that I'm all but dissertation. I already have my master's degree because of taking two years off between my master's and my PhD. So I'm ahead of the game and why I'm trapped, you know, I'm a third or fourth year trapped in a second year's body. But I've already got it all like designed out, part of my, I've got commit, my committee I'm already talking to about stuff. I've already got designs. I've got an outside committee member who's a trans, witch, non-binary, ASD individual who looks at magic and esoteric thought processes and interactive narratives and interactive tangible designs. So I'm, I'm kind of far ahead. I only have one bottleneck I have to worry about, and that's a worry because I don't know what it'll be like. Not because I not think I can answer it, because the, the part of the, the qual is basically this. I have to say, this has been one of the things that I've loved getting into, like the the, the feminist movement, the LGBT commu community, is the, the people that are thinking outside the box, thinking like things that like we've We've been in systems that like have like I, I killed it. Like I, I my, my own story was was trapped for thirty years in one heteronormative story, and I feel so much better now that I've broken out of that. And and it's cool to like hearing you to talk about this stuff. It's like wow, I can resonate so much. Yeah, and uh, part of the area of research I do that is not games is based in science fiction, which is you know the big lead into this feminist and queer movements, and one that I do not. I am I am excited to read more about that in queer theory because feminist science fiction led the way into queer theory, although queer or queer science fiction, even in both of those, sorry, uh, queer is used. I know that makes certain people uncomfortable. That is just a term used. LGB studies is a thing. Queer studies is used specifically for its act of providing an outsider queer perspective. So it's, I know that term might make certain individuals uncomfortable. It's not judgmental at all. It is literally just a term being used. 
But queer science fiction is one of those that built off feminism and then has been going on since I think the 40s or the 50s and been going on forever. The problem with science fiction is a problem I've seen in academia that I have to talk about in my dissertation is that all of science fiction has been consolidated into Star Wars, Marvel, Star Trek, visual mediums and anything that isn't visual has been left to rot or over overlooked. And so there's this view that Star Trek, Minority Report, 2001 A Space Odyssey are what science fiction are. When they're not, they're an aspect of science fiction that needs to be taken into consideration. But certain academic fields and certain studies view them as the, that as the source of science fiction that they are then able to extract how to do social change through and create better science fiction. Keep talking, seriously. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep ahead. talking. Don't worry. This is my job. Uh, so what I'm looking at specifically is weird fiction. And weird fiction came about from the pulp era. H.P. Lovecraft is the most wide known. Um, and looking at how weird fiction is able to pull a bunch of disparate ideas together without having to worry about frameworks. Queer, uh, weird fiction is horror, fantasy, and sci-fi all mixed together. You know, a reanimated skeleton rides a robotic horse to go save the princess from a dragon like what why is that make sense but it's able to because it's able to incorporate these ideas and use the science fiction techniques of internalized world building to create a consistent internalized world that you can then then form and research and understand and expand if you're necessary and so weird fiction itself is this queering of genres that then happens bigger in science fiction itself with like slipstream and a bunch of other genres that are these combinatory um combi these combinations of multiple genres like slipstream is fiction and science fantasy and uh, science fiction merging together to make these weird trains of thoughts and so science fiction is actually very mutable and they're such a we uh, i'm going to use weird as a, this you know space of anomalous progress a weird space that it it's already done these genre defining breaking categorizing breaking and renewal reflection deconstruction reconstructions um and so part of mine is there's a book by mark fisher called the weird and the eerie he talks about capitalism and capitalistic horror but he provides a useful definition for weird and eerie for those that aren't potentially aware of it he defines them as related to the unheimlich of freud before you roll your eyes it's actually a good use of freud it's not all about dicks vaginas and wanting to screw yeah, your mom freud, not everything <laughs> freud said was garbage so yeah uh specifically he talks about how the weird is the inclusion of the unfamiliar in your familiar a giant squid appears and talks to you that's unfamiliar to your definition of the worldview, so you must rectify that and either incorporate that into your new real or reject it. But either way, you're in a weird experience. The eerie is when the familiar becomes unfamiliar, when you're in a living structure like a parking deck, except there's no cars and no sound. Then this once living object is now dead and it's unfamiliar and it's scary and it's you must you must come to terms with the fact that it is no longer this entity you once thought you knew. 
And so I talk about that in queer stories and these transgressive stories are in these middle grounds where we constantly try to sit in between the weird and the eerie where both things are familiar and unfamiliar. This kind of ties into an old French genre called the fantastique, which is this idea that fantasy structures used to be about a real world that's then intruded upon about by a new bizarre outside structure that redefines the world and the fantastique was this area of time where you weren't sure if you were experiencing the real world with new rules revealed or if you were in a fantasy world where the new world is completely made up and so some of these issues that are coming out is these are games about the fantastique and, and navigating which side of the world you go on and not going wholeheartedly one way or the other and muddying the message. Um, Lovecraft boils into this because Lovecraft ends up being this very liminal space for outsiders. Um, H. Bomber guy has a video essay on this, which is great if you haven't seen it. Um, original Lovecraft is a racist piece of shit. He supposedly got better in the coming years, but he's still a racist piece of shit. We won't have to worry about that. Um, but he, in writing stories about the fear of the outsider, fear of these white male people experiencing the world and realizing there's something other and something disgusting and disturbing, he wrote for, he ended up almost ironically hashing out this space for the outsiders to be drawn in. People identify with Olmstead who becomes a fish monster because like, oh, this is a gay story, or that's a story where a guy almost gets lynched and like a black individual going to a sundown town really resonates with that, which is what eventually leads to Lovecraft Country that recently got published. And so it created this very polarized genre where outsiders were drawn to it, wanted to discuss it and create works of it, but you know, there's also these ultra white ring conservative assholes who kind of take it run with it. And so since then, they've kind of always been this tussle between them that's finally broken out. And this is a side area of research of mine that I, I discussed called Neo Lovecraftian Horror, that the new weird, which came out of China Mieville and the Jeff Vandermeers, the Vandermeer, his wife, um, they created the new weird, which is looking at the weird genre updating it for modern times and specifically pushing back against Lovecraft's conservative influences of it to tell modernized stories. The Area X is the Annihilation film. It's a fantastic series, um, but it essentially boils down to, it's like who will survive an apocalypse, usually people that are outsiders or those who experience trauma and learn to adapt with it. These are, this is my queer reading of it. And they are more likely to survive than these artificial heteronormative white male power structures that will inevitably fall in the face of unknowable change. It's also the, oh, go ahead. Oh, I just, I just wanted to kind of interject something and this may be me misremembering mm -hmm. totally, but I remember that in the six, well, I don't remember this cause I wasn't alive, but in the sixties, there were apparently a whole bunch of science fiction writers who got together and they were all Lovecraft slash weird fans mm -hmm. and they all tried to write their own versions of what not necessarily just Lovecraft but I think one of their sources was the King in Yellow yeah um that kind of thing 
And so, for instance, Darkover, which, dear Christ, is still going today. I wish they'd stop. <laughs> yeah, it's like, she died, stop it. Um, but anyway, but like Darkover was a version of The King in Yellow and that kind of thing. And so I'm just trying to, you know, my knowledge of, of horror and weird fiction is not huge. I've read some Lovecraft. I haven't read everything because the racism got to me. Um, you know, I've read some of the King in Yellow stories. Um, I used to be a huge fan of Darkover. And so I'm just trying to kind of relate some of this to what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, so In what, my own brain. Yeah. What ended up happening is Lovecraft died in one of his fans, um, Durlith. Oh, God. I, I, you know, and if you're a Lovecraft fan, please don't, please don't butcher me too hard about all this. He died. A fan took over his works and made a canonical text that then people used as the basis for like Call of Cthulhu and all of these other Cthulhu mythos works. So his influence was spread out. Like you're saying, this is kind of the, the refinement of it, even if there are some issues of adding morality, of Durleth adding some Christian morality to this amoral experience. And then that leading to this canonical idea that then has been both adapted, utilized, and kept until the modern era where it's breaking off again and spiraling. So you, you're correct. And I, I completely have never heard of this before. And it sounds amazing because you're right. Um, the King in Yellow is- Which part? Is, the 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 dark over series yeah um, i mean and the thing is a lot of people i think who have read dark over which had its ups and downs in terms of how good it was and of course marion zimmer bradley herself is now a very controversial figure but you know it's like a lot of people just jumped on the whole telepathic you know closeness of I guess some of the individuals in the series and they didn't really realize what it was she was basing this on which like if you read her first few books not chronologically first few but first few that she wrote were very very much steeped in the the mythos of of horror i guess yeah yeah I mean, it makes sense. This is a big thing about science fiction research is a lot of rediscovery of, because why we have fanzines and we have all these chronicles, because it is a very fan-centric genre that helped it grow and expand. We also have right. people that wrote under pen names and never revealed it. So part of my mentor and academy member, Lisa Yazik, is dealing with the recovery of feminist texts and feminist authors. She also works on Afrofuturism and upraising. The, that perspective in science fiction. So you're right. The number of women who wrote under male pseudonyms and didn't reveal them. Sisters of Tomorrow is the book. I believe you can, she's, she's constantly working on recovering these people and bringing their voices back, which is technically queer theory to kind of go back to a previous topic. It's, you know, finding lost voices or voices that might have been shunted off and reintroducing them if they can't be introduced in the environment, injecting them back into the modern discussions so that their voices can be heard if they were lost to time. Do you think some of these writers meant to reveal that they were actually females, but then they didn't? Or do you think they always meant to, to just, like maybe try to, to say some things that feminists could latch on to but without revealing themselves as women 
I think it's both, which is the answer that is terrible for a podcast. Um, right, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. But honestly, it's, it's, both it, is probably the right answer. The, the both is the correct answer because, you know, some of them were fiction authors that did another thing, but science fiction was looked down upon. It was a male thing. Or, you know, there was just sexist aspects to it of, like, males get published. So there was this need to hide your identity until you were either large enough to break in or just keep writing and not have to worry about it. I have my own little side hustle um, with the other things. So it's, it is it is a fascinating area for research to look into. But yeah, the, the querying of Lovecraft is, you know, the, as you're talking about, it spun off, it did a bunch of other things. And this isn't brand new. There's an entire series that's dedicated, that's written by a Japanese American who writes about the uh, internment of deep ones from Innsmouth by the FBI and she writes about that from the perspective of someone whose parents were in the internment camps and this idea and drawing together of the outsider and these Lovecraftian mythos and it goes a little further until we have this idea that Lovecraft has now kind of split thanks to the new weird, this modernizer version, but pushing back just enough that all the racist shit doesn't have to be in there. So now there's this paradoxically fertile ground for queers and outsiders to start talking about. So you have things like Incase, who is very, very uh, uh, sexy artist, let's say, who did an entire very, very evocative cosmic horror piece on two individuals with gender switching in timeless space you have lovecraft country which is you know what is the scariest thing about lovecraft it's being part of an unknowable system that hates you inherently well that's just you know that's just jim crow era usa there's you know the perspective shift that tor did there's an entire series of books of the dream quest of bella bow uh the Ballad of Black Tom. There's two others I haven't read yet because I didn't realize that till recently. They were all attempts to take Lovecraft and rewrite him into the perspective of the outsiders. So Dreamcrest of Velvet Bow is somebody from the Dreamlands who are viewed as these weird outsider entities trying to save her people going to reality. And it's this huge transgression because she's the first female character in the Dreamlands, which is a long running series in Lovecraft. She shit talks the dreamers because they're all assholes, because they're all white guys who think they're better than anything because they can do anything. You know, she talks about the the horrors of living in a world that can at any at any moment bend to the whims of these elder things, and then eventually she gets to a, to the real world and talks about the the freedom of having rules that are understandable. It's a really lovely book. I would highly suggest it's only like hundred pages. It's the super short novella. The other one is Ballad of Black Tom, which takes a hugely hugely racist, stereotypical character from the horror of Red Hook, makes him the main character, and then makes him a pretty good guy having to deal with insanely racist bullshit from the police of the era and finally turning to magic and Lovecraftian entities to exact revenge and it and admitting he kind of went off the edge to do it but you know it, it, it kind of rings like a a gangster book wrapped in Lovecraft um he's not the only viewpoint protagonist but it has that same feeling of like I had to play the game to survive they took it a step up. I went to the next biggest thing to do it. And now I have to deal with the fallout and end there. 
And so now what we have at this neo-Lovecrafting horror is a lot of these outsiders' voices sharing their stories. And the kind of bonus that came out of this was the, uh, well, Brexit and the presidential election. And so now people are like, well, shit, I need to talk about this now. Um, one of the bigger books that I've read recently is A Cosmology of Monsters, which is just a regular-ass white guy who's like, I want to write a Rodcraft. Uh, I want to write a Lovecraft novel. And then Trump got elected, and he's like, I can't write Lovecraft anymore. How the hell do I do a traditional... It's too much like real life. Yeah. yeah. How the hell do I do a traditional Lovecraftian narrative in this modern era? And one of the things that uh, you'll notice in a bunch of these books when you start to consume them is this subgenre. It's not, it's not identified yet. It's my own personal baby project. Is that what it happens in it is that you can see that community becomes a very important aspect to the narratives. Instead of the lone hero versus the cosmic unknown, it is the lone hero having to juggle his perspective with the community, with the perspective of the outside unknown, and then the community juggling both and deciding what is more important. Like, it might be worth killing a few people for the benefit of this entity to pass over them, just as it might be beneficial for this individual to forsake their community for the power of the, this entity. And so what this does is it expands the traditional conservative us versus them to the liberal, to, it, it expands those traditional narratives to include liberal ideas of like community consideration, me versus my community versus wider aspects. And so there's these more, these, these more deeper narratives that boil out of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I've been working on that one for two years. I my anxiety was uh, killing me. I haven't published it yet, but I think the the estrogen and the ADHD is helpful with that enough that I can start to finally put some pen to paper. Yeah, and I would love to read it. Yeah, you know, because I I'm sitting here like yesterday we were we were actually Frasley and I were guesting on a podcast, and I forget how it came up, but I said something about tentacles. I forget what it was or what the context was. And and the the two hosts were kind of like, tentacles? Really? You know, and now I'm just kind of sitting here going, tentacles. Tentacles. Yeah. Tentacles. This is They're also- not bad. This is also what leads to the monster fucker and the, the queer identification with the monster is like, they identify with a monster from Lovecraft and now they internalize it because society views them as monsters. Just, well, fuck you, I'm gonna be a monster now. Yeah. You're gonna deal with it because I'm going to break societal rules and understanding because one of the other books I've read is gothic queer culture, queer gothic culture, gothic queer culture. It talks about how we represent, I say we as the non-binary, as the queers of the world. Um, right represent a visual rebukement of the heteronormative world, the future first perspective that, you know, always think about the kids and we go up and get like, hey, excuse me, what about now? And that that is monstrous to people to think about. Like, I have yeah. to be happy and nice to people now? Fuck that. I'll be happy and nice to my kids or their grandchildren, but not now. So we, we force perspectives shift and leaning into the monstrous helps with that for our sake of finding safety and culture and a, and a voice and a vision, but also to kind of give us that, the, the oomph to start talking about these big scary things. 
Well, Lady Gaga's fans also kind of tie into this because it talks you know about Gaga monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, but but that's that's kind of one thing where you were like, you know, identifying as monsters, and I'm like, well, there we go. You know, that whole idea of being a monster, but it's okay, you were made that way or something like that. Yeah, yeah, born that I, way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I love that that song, and like I was recently called an abomination by somebody, and, and, and but. Now I, I it kept me back in my head, but but now when you talk about the idea of, being, of, of of like the monster, it's like it makes sense. Society views people that they don't understand as monsters, as as weird, as strange, and all that. Yeah, you can be my baby monster, honey. Okay, I'll be your baby monster <laughs> with all my tentacles and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm actually on track somehow on my notes. I don't know how I'm doing this. I swear to I, God, I'm doing really good. It's magic. It's uh, magic. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump back to the tabletop perspective. Uh, oh yeah. Specifically, yeah. why I'm looking at tabletops in relation to weird, and this monstrous perspective is because I base it out of the traditions of Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, and the modern interpretation of my new weird. That then informs that all of those games, though, allow for the theater of the mind and allow for outsiders to talk in push and pull because tabletop is a social game it's a community game it allows for outsiders to talk and say hey get the fuck out of my game you're a piece of shit or you know ask serious questions that people wouldn't consider um i know when i was still eggy and undiagnosed with everything um i talked about tabletop role-playing games as this great exciting thing i'm from the indie side of things and somebody's like yeah i went and played call of cthulhu and they're like you're you you switch genders now you are now a man. It's like, is this supposed to be scary? And it ruined the game for everybody playing it. Because it's like, take sand loss. You're a, you change sex because of a sex spell. It's like, okay, does that, does that, does that change anything about me? N no? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and it yeah. ruined the game for the people, but that helped inform them and start this discussion about it. And that's kind of what led to my, part of what bled into this new weird discussion that I made is like, Lovecraft actually has some very poignant discussion points you can have about being a queer individual. Like, there's an entity, Shabnagurath, the goat of the young, she's always tied to hermaphrodism and rampant offspring and creation. But what happened in the 90s in the tabletop role-playing game is it's controlled by a bunch of white guys who do a lot of edgy bullshit, so she's gotten to, unfortunately tied to transphobic, homophobic, sexist ideas. You know, for example, the last big campaign she had had a woman turn giant, keep you in a cave and rape you repeatedly for the sake of shock factor and to make monsters that would kill you if you didn't do what she said. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's a terrible game. And she has never appeared since that I've seen in my research because that game is awful and paints her into this very bad light. However, the trans persons, non-binary individuals, think of the ability that this entity has of allowing people to control hormones. Now she's typically viewed as like big pharma is evil and holistic medicine is evil. But now in this more community-based space, we can talk about how there would be pe there are people now who do DIY hormones. What happens if they turn to this entity? Or, you know, hey, you normies don't know what transitioning is like. Let me share this horror through a game. Here's what it's like to experience 
PMS for the first time. Here's what it's like to have a shrinking aspect. You know, here's, you know, your ass hair shows up all of a sudden and scares everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, that's one of my la, favorite la, la. Uh, But it opens up this design space for a lot more queer perspectives to inject themselves into this traditionally white male project. And I, that was before my egg cracked a lot of my, pro, my, my work and research goals was to have this space hacked out so people could start moving and moving and moving. My egg cracked. Um, so now I get to talk about it like I am part of the community. Um, but what I realized is that part of what informs this is that I don't view this is going to be a weird tangent till I loop back into it, I swear, is that the basis of a lot of my research is existentialism, much like nihilism from H.P. Lovecraft, but I approach it from the Terry Pratchett side of things, where Terry Pratchett is very absurdist very matter of fact very funny very poignant about it but he doesn't see the white space of existence as a scary thing it's just an aspect that humanity has to deal with and can deal with so a lot of my games are existentialism a la terry pratchett where i ask these very absurd pinpoint questions that you have to solve and learn to live with like there's a my, my most famous one that i met my wife with because i killed her friend's character and i never did kill her but i threatened to numerous times i turned her into a monster right she hatched out of an egg and turned into a monster if that wasn't fucking foreshadowing i don't know what the fuck was it's a summer camp where it's literally the goal is lovecraftian young adult you go to a summer camp and monsters and magic are real and you learn you have no place in this world as it will destroy you and you have to figure out how to form your own place it's that breaking through the abyss. You know, you look at the abyss and you blink. Okay, well, you look at the abyss and you spit and you realize you'll be back in a week and a half to do it again. And it's this push that Pratchett talks about that has been kind of straw nihilism has taken over. The Hogfather talks about this of like, you got to believe in things so they become real. Justice, love, peace. They're not actually real, but the belief in them makes them real. So a lot of my games are trying to force that existential belief of like, yo, nothing matters. Everything matters because of that. And so that's where I go back into these tabletop role-playing games of like Delta Green or Call of Cthulhu or some of the more Lovecraftian-based ones because they provide that ability and mechanical interaction to showcase what these existentialism and breaking through that nihilistic barrier looks like they give you the tools to see that so you can internalize them later and use them in your own life i'm hoping i'm I, that, that, like i'm gonna make up <laughs> one tangent because something that you said has been like at the back of my head ever since you mentioned it i have gotten into horror movies and games since coming out and since like breaking that barrier and I kind of have been thinking about the fact that why I like playing this. I want to know what's the monster's perspective. What's the story behind why there's this monster? And I kept I kept wondering why is it that I could not watch this horror stuff before, but now I'm like, I want to know the story. I want to know what's going on. And and have you have you seen a link of of, of like people that that like exploring the monster and exploring like 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 who they are? Because there there are times that I do watch it because it's like like a slasher film. The person's like like getting all, all cut up. But there's times I'm like watching a movie like what. Why is this monster doing this? What's behind it? And then you learn like, 
okay, I actually feel for that monster now. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's part of the science. That, that, that's part of what I say is the root of science fiction. It's not the root of science fiction that you've codified it in a perspective of like, a good story has to be internally consistent and understanding what the monster does typically means that the narrative is one that's a lot more poignant. Candyman sucks if you have no context of what it's like to be a black person in Chicago during the ghetto times. Once you have that context, wow, this is a way more poignant figure having to deal with the sins of the past being revisited upon gentrification and stuff like that. And so a lot of these interpretations of the monsters are interpretations and they might not, you know, death of the author aspect of like, they might not be that, but they become a cultural identity. Alien, Terminator, all of these, you know, Alien is a guy, a Giger monster that he had a nightmare about that wanted a penis for a tail. It's not designed, it was, you know, and it's about space truckers, but it's become this entity about the fear of the void and what happens beyond human's identity. It was a spooky monster that then caught our cultural understanding and evolved from there because it was evocative, you know. Terminator is our fear of AI uprising and killing us for misdeeds. Though if you'll notice, most people abusing AI are cis white guys, so like, why would a minority group actually want to kill other minority groups? Let's not talk about that. That was a reading response I had today. It got weird. I had to talk about issues of slavery and AI. It, it's another tangent. Yeah, you're right, though, is, is, is that so much of this stuff is from the, the cis, old, white gaze being horrified by things that can be compared to people like you and me. Yeah. You know, the monsters. And that's why, like, finding the perspective of the monster is so horrifying, especially when you humanize it, because that makes the, to go back to what we said earlier, it makes it a weirder tale, because you have a, you are now familiarizing with it, you understand it, or you've defamiliarized it, and it's become something you thought was real that is now not, and you're stuck in this weird and eerie space trying to fix your mental mindscape of where you sit in reality. It's why I, I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's why I've enjoyed the, the haunting series on Netflix, the Hill House and, and Bly Manor, because I feel like that they went into that in a very big way. So some people I, I know hated those, but I was so entrapped in, 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 in those because I was like, when, once I found out why, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I haven't seen them. So. There's also the issue of psychological horror versus grotesque body jump scare horror. And I say grotesque and like saw and gross physical harm instead of like transformation. And there's to take my neutral academic hat off. There's the issue of gross bodily harm and jump scares being a little bit less intelligent because you can just have anybody kill anybody. You yeah. can view them through a interesting cultural lens, like the slash effects of the 70s are related to the assassinations, the political assassinations of the 60s, making people scared of the outsider. The rise of ghosts and hauntings in the 80s was because the 70s were full of these fear that, oh God, at any point somebody could turn into this evil terrorist. It's why it popped up again after 9-11. We have all of these internal hidden evils that then pop up with no ability to control them until at mass decimation. And we're seeing this slow shift, specifically looking at like Midsommar and uh, Hereditary of like, no, actually families are fucked up. And the horror comes from internalized family structures. We'll just sprinkle a little bit of horror on top of it to let you really focus on how 
societal structures are actually kind of the weirdest thing in the world that are breaking down and we're worrying about. Yeah, I I have to say, and it, it's kind of like, you know, you were saying earlier that you wouldn't judge us too much for liking WoW. And Frasley and I met through WoW, so... There's yeah. so many games but, in the MMO world. Like, that's that's a huge area of game research is the, the, the ability yeah. to use MMOs and have an avatar that matches your internal system better than your external system. Oh, yeah. One thing that, that really always upset me, though, was the... And you see this so much, too, in their, their Chronicle books that they published and that they're now saying aren't actually canon. But they're, they're talking about so-and-so descended into madness. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, having grown up as a mentally ill person, I've always been... It's one of the things I, I dislike about WoW is so-and-so was insane and so they were evil. Yeah. And it's like, okay, could we see an insane character perhaps who's not evil? Or could we see someone who's whose evilness isn't explained by being insane? Or could we even just take the evil out of it? Could we, you know, they're talking about one of the big evil characters possibly being redeemed in the next expansion. And I'm sort of hoping Ooh. they are because I always said, you know, so and so was redeemable. And everyone so go, no, they were just yes. evil. Yes, yeah. Sylvanas did nothing wrong. Or no, 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 not <laughs> Sylvanas. I'm talking about Arthas. Oh, I, cause, cause I'm hearing about Sylvanas being redeemed. But... Yeah, well, I, maybe Sylvanas will be redeemed. I don't know. But they're talking about Arthas being redeemed. And I'm like, you know what? I would like to think that there was good in Arthas. And yeah. that we can look back and, you know, same with Kelthas. All these people who went insane, therefore were evil. And I'm like, you know what? A, insanity isn't evil, but B, no. I'm just so tired of the concept of evil. And yeah, this, I, it's funny. This is a part of my research comes from the shift in that perspective from Delta uh, Call of Cthulhu to Delta Green. The Call of Cthulhu is based on traditional Lovecrafty narratives. Delta Green started as a kind of a standalone world in the Call of Cthulhu realm. It was basically X-Files meets Call of Cthulhu. So it was modern Lovecraftian tales. But they eventually split off and what they did is they yeeted the old sanity mechanics. Which is like, oh, you've lost enough sanity. You're insane now with necrophilia. Um, and they've replaced it with a stress mechanic that is replicated from the uh experience of soldiers from the middle east and as such it now acts as like oh you can survive these things uh helplessness unnaturalness violence or you can sh uh, you can brunt them yourselves or you can shove them onto people as a way to kind of be natural ablative armor against stressing out and that creates this much more interesting perspective because you might eventually develop some type of mental illness from stress which is a little bit more realistic. It's also a mechanic that you can remove completely from the game, use the base mechanics, the dice roll system, the skill sets and the stress mechanics, scrub away every single um, Lovecraftian reference. And now you have a game based on, you know, what's it like to live in a high stress environment, like a closet of an individual in the middle of evangelical ca uh, Kansas. Yeah, I don't know anything about stress personally. Yeah, no. Yeah, I yeah, no, no, Which, yeah, yeah, me either, me either. None of us know anything about stress. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, like I said, though, I get tired of the concept of evil being an explanation for things. I'm not saying that everybody who appears to be evil should be redeemed or whatever, 
but what I am saying is that games that have just a very black and white idea of what's good and what's evil piss me off because I feel that there's a lot more to evil than just, you know, somebody's bad and kills people or rapes people or, you know, creates monstrosities or whatever. There's a lot more. There's more to explore there. Yeah, that's part of the issue I have, everyone has, with the fucking D&D alignment chart. I am staunchly anti-D&D, which is why my research doesn't talk into it. I will talk to that in a second. But, like, the issue with D&D is it's been codified into a way that it wasn't originally. I actually had access to original D&D books in my library before they got rid of the archives for various reasons. And, um... All evil and good boiled down to was considered others versus considered self. And that was your dichotomy of like, are you selfish or are you altruistic? There was no, this is an evil thing, this is a good thing. It's like, okay, that means a character that has the wider community good in mind, but murders everyone to do it in their path could be good because they're ultimately doing a altruistic thing for the community, even if it appears to be a selfishly motivated goal. It allows for Byronic heroes. It allows for complexities of discussion. It's not just, this is a good act that helps people. This is a bad act that hinders people. So, right. And, and I think that, that this idea of good and evil is, is partially why we're seeing so many of the issues we are seeing in society today. Because I feel that, you know, again, the, the you know, the older white cis guys are pushing this narrative of things are either bad or they're good. And if we say they're bad, then they're bad. I.e. so liberals are bad because they don't stand for the same things we do, church and home and family. Yeah. You know, and it, it's like, you know, whereas I, f I feel that now liberals are getting polarized. I know I am to some extent where I'm just like, if you voted for Trump, you're evil. And there are a lot of people who will who will now say that. And it's like, well, yeah, you did vote to, for instance, you know, see me killed. But <laughs> but at the same time, did you think you were doing the right thing? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, what is what's the intent good and evil just just need to be thrown out of the narrative i think in games in society in narratives altogether maybe i'm being yeah. very simplistic i don't know but to take off the academic hat to put on the the raised in a you know cult church um hat it's definitely due to issues of Christianity, it's monotheistic, thus there is always a binary. If you go to monotheistic regions, religions, atheistic regions, agnostic religions, anything that has more than one sole source, your ability to see grace vastly increases because this person agrees, this person doesn't, thus I might have to choose a middle ground between them. Since yep. Christianity is so steeped in the conservative mindset and has been so thoroughly beat into the u.s cultural identity not etched not forced not natural it has actually been forced into it we are we are a polarized society that has to view these things and until we get people that talk about grays through different perspectives religious perspectives it's not going to happen yeah which is why dionysus has always been my favorite god because he was like so apollo. morally gray i like apollo 
Because he's the the god of trans individuals, if you didn't know that. Oh! I did not know that. He got drunk one night and put the wrong genitals on people. <gasps> oh. That is li- that is the... So, Apollo is god of trans. I feel like Apollo uh, must have cursed me then, because that's, that's how I feel. Wow. And That's interesting. I, I do like this idea of getting rid of that binary of the good and evil, because like I said, when, when I... When I started like getting rid of my 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 binary of thinking that I was a man, it made me kind of reevaluate stuff and like, why do I believe that? Or why did I believe that? Why did I think that something was one way? And as I've been getting rid of that, I was like, you know what? There's a lot more truth to this. I mean, the, 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 like I I now believe that there's that, that, that there could be ghosts or paranormal. I, in fact, I I had one that I shared recently about in my house. I heard some I heard some, some something calling out to me. I cannot explain it, but yeah, yeah, it's that, that's a whole different tangent too, and all that. I don't want to. Get... <laughs> Did it have tentacles though? No, I don't think so. I should have gone up to me and said, "Hey, baby, do you want do you have any tentacles?" <laughs> Listen, I'm falling down the trans trans checklist. I'm sure I've got cat ears and a choker on the way somewhere. Um, but I'm I, got, <laughs> I want one of those too. <laughs> I mean, I I got a fucking witch book right here that I've been reading that is hilarious because I've been picking up witchcraft and it's it's I am still a. I have a degree in engineering, a very logical person, but it's very interesting to read this as like atheistic, secular, atheistic witchcraft is trying to just implement self placebo effects. But you can read the books as religious texts that use psychology before psychology, much like the preacher was. And so like this book on urban magic is the distinction of like trying to do social justice and community work through the lens of witchcraft. Like, how do you affect ah. it? It literally is like, how do you make a, a neighborhood safe? Well, you need to do a small thing and then make it bigger and bigger and grow. You need to be accepted by the community and the in the city. Like, how do you make an invisibility spell? Will you make a don't bother me aura around you? Or you think of a color that makes you blend into the background. It's a lot of these. It, it is mysticism through utilize. It is a reconfiguration and a translation of basic urban understanding into spellcraft and then some social justice and community activism through the lens of witchcraft, or at least that's how I view it. I just sent that that in a tweet to one of my friends who, who who's a witch because I think she would find that fascinating. Um, here we go, guide for the city witch. Woohoo! Yeah. There's another one I haven't read yet, but you know I can't I can't I have to make I have to pay the bills through being a PhD student before I can pay the bills by being a witch professor. I'll agree with that. Um, which my darling wife is laughing at at me. Um, but yeah, to kind of go back to tabletop role-playing games, since we're, we're sitting here about community aspect and retranslation and allowing for all these different perspectives, something D&D can't do. D&D and the video games that come out of it are all based on this evocative image I am using to describe my research kind of as a whole, is that D&D is monolithic, monopolistic to the tabletop role-playing game, um, medium to the point of detriment. I constantly get into a fight. Well, not constantly get into a fight. I should talk about this um, in case people from my program listen to it. Um, basically, what happens is D&D is a gilded cage. Video games are a gilded cage. You are allowed to interact within them. They look freeing. They look impressive. But you actually have no agency inside of the experience. You are only allotted agency as the designer, typically the GM, gives you um, 
in D and D, you have a bit more, so it's maybe a it's maybe like a rubber cage instead of a metal cage, and you're able to define the shape a bit more. But ultimately, it is the GM's purpose to design the game and present it to you. That is one design style. Where when I look at Dungeons and or when I look at Call of Cthulhu and the descendants of those games, the user input is more important. And my and my summer camp game, for instance, um, that's based off a system called Little Fears Nightmare Edition. Um, and I call this a it is an un, it is a feminist perspective on cosmic horror. Because by the end of it, whether they realize it or not, it presents you with five to six ways of solving an encounter. The monster that you it's based off the idea of belief so it's like it it's like hook it's like goonies it's you can run every single one of these games the player is a child if you believe your shoes can run up walls you can run up walls go away spam risk um but at the same time the world is built on belief that's also built on terror so if you're scared of things you impart terror to it it becomes a monster so the car dog down the street to the local junkyard is a regular dog until it scares you it gets imparted a way to build this narrative it imparts a bit of terror to you and now it becomes a cerberus hellhound that wants to eat you and so now you have a goal for the session for the narrative for the experience how do we deal with this evil hellhound down the street well you can deplete its HP, which does not actually kill it, it'll just respawn the next night. You can get rid of its terror, thus neutralizing what made you scared of it, and return it to its normal thing, normal processes. You can give it a goal, which all of them inherently have, and if you give it its goal, it'll stop existing, it's just done. It might turn back into a dog or whatnot. Now the goal could be I want to kill everybody. Not really going to side with that one. Um, you can also give rituals in this game which are you set up hard to find rules for the world based on your belief that you could then use to shut down the the entity so like a guard dog can't escape the junkyard great we don't have to worry about that wait a second everyone that enters the junkyard's dead now christ that was a monkey's paw wish um and then the other way is socializing you can literally talk to the monster and if you roll good enough the gm allows it in their narrative you can just befriend it and then you can kind of keep it as an entity that you interact with, maybe hop over to another system that allows for more monstrous individuals to play as a character. So this game now has six ways of dealing with the issue, and it's all up to what the GM and the players want. And that is so much more than kill it, befriend it, that you see in D&D, that you end up designing these games as trellises instead of these gilded cages. They, you set up the framework for the players to creep up like vines, and then once they hit a point that you need to go, you just add a little bit of netting to it to see where they go from there. And so that's that radical idea of agency I talked about way long ago, and that the users and the designers work in conjunctions and co-collaborative to make the experience. And those are the experiences that are not unique to tabletop role-playing games, but can be extracted from to be used in and viewed as ways to be imported into analog and digital mediums. I'm specifically looking at more existential ones, such as Undertale and Danganronpa and uh, Spec Ops The Line and some of these other ones as visual examples to pull from to chart this course before we dunk down into it. But that's where the the queer theory comes from is like 
Tabletop games have a framework. You go, you punch monster, you get XP. Sometimes you know punch monster, you talk monster, but you get XP. And I'm like, what happens if you just go and give it what it wants and, you know, start a clubhouse with the local goblin gang because they want to, you know, be a rap group? Or, you know, what if you want to what if you want to summon a pizza golem from the local animatronic shop to fight a uh, a giant bandaged demon wizard that is a manifestation of one of your players internal angst taking control? I don't know. Roll. Do it. We'll see what happens. So I would like to throw you a curveball here and say what? How would you relate relate all of this um, theory to Untitled Goose Game? That's a game about play, and that's what I am trying to design for now. Is play Goose Game has goals, but it's a goal for get to the next area to play around in. That's a sandbox game with multiple little sandbox that eventually build into a larger narrative. It's still confined to the nature of video games, which are by their nature hard-coded experience that have a set defined piece of rules. And we actually had the Goose Game guys come and talk to us at school one day. Um, oh my god. For their uh, little crank system that's coming out. Um, wow. And, okay. you know, it's like their first or second game. It's their first system. And so, like, a lot of their designs are innovative because they haven't been beaten down by what a game is. And that's why that game feels so innovative because it's, you're a goose. You're a terrible goose. Go have fun being a terrible goose and do all this goofy shit. It's play. It's play that is wrapped in a game that has these hard defined rules, but it is close to pure joy and play as I've experienced in a while. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was kind of thinking that it maybe, in a sense, almost transcended the idea of, of. but but I, I think you just probably put it best. It's play. Yeah. And, it, and, and this, this gets into arguments. Ian Bogos is at my school. Ian Bogos talked about how the issue with Goose Game is it's still a game because it's play, but it still has the capitalistic desire of do action get reward yeah but the issue is, is that's an inherent that is a an inherent issue baked into the nature of technology and until you make deep societal technological issues this waxing philosophic about how this is a good game but it could be better if you remove the capitalistic nature it's probably not gonna be a thing especially when they have to get their money back to keep making weird goofy things yeah, that's true. I mean, they have to make money. You know, that's, it's an unfortunate that's the way society works. Where we yeah. live, yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think if there's a way to live without without money being necessary because I would do it. Be a witch in the woods. I, I actually just just uh, purchased Undertale <laughs> while we were talking. Oh, did you? I have it. I haven't really played it, but I have it, um, and I really it, need to. And I and, and and I'll be playing a, a, a Untitled Goose Game at later on but i just picked up undertale for switch i was like oh, this awesome. game i can sit on the couch and just uh undertale enjoy. is i see one of the issues with being an academic is that we throw around spoilers like they are nothing 
we will walk in and be like, oh yeah, Luke killed Leia. This person's dead. That person's a ghost and a hallucination. Watch the film backwards. It makes more sense. And it, even though it makes sense, it's still a piece of shit. Like, you know, we don't care. We throw it around like nothing because we're trying to devolve it. I will say the best way to play Undertale is three times. And the first time you play it, just play it how you want it. It'll direct you and you'll learn how to do it because it's it, it does a very good job priming you and internalizing its world logic in that first playthrough. And it's very hard to get the third playthrough until you actually purposefully try for it. And I'm trying to be very vague, but the best experience for that game is to go in blind, just play it as is through the full 20, 30, 40, 60 hours. I don't remember how long it is because some people soak way longer than others. Do another playthrough. You'll understand the context when that happens. Follow the route that the game suggests in that one. And then at the end, you might not have the emotional fortitude to play the third route. I would suggest watching somebody else then. But that is that is not the idealized way, but that is the best way I've seen for people who have no context of the game to experience it. Because revealing about the game, this is part of the issue with transgressive narratives. Once you say there are transgressions in them that involve the player, they're already on the lookout for them. So yeah. I've given you a slight spoiler, but it's, you know, it, it, it is nothing to worry about. It's fine. You'll figure it out. I didn't go into details. The, you know, for instance, if I had talked about Pathologic, this, the transgression of that game is damn near impossible to get to because you have to beat a game that like only 25% of players have played, beaten. And that's a game that's been around for like a decade. And once you've beaten it, you have to get like the perfect ending, which involves talking to, talking to God, then the kids playing with playing a game that they think oh god how do i phrase this oh this always hurts to talk about you have to beat the game talk to god realize you're all characters in a child's play game then go talk to the designers of the game's avatar in the game who then starts talking to you the player through your avatar I think I've actually seen this on on YouTube. The, the, H this guy. Yes. Yeah. So it's not that hard to get the transgression in Undertale. I will spoil Pathologic because it boils down to I want to see how you survive a pandemic, which is really prescient. Um, yes. Mm, yeah. I hope you enjoy it. I I, I think it will. I mean, a, a, a game that that somebody gave the Pope. I think I, I want. <laughs> You hear about that, right? Somebody actually gave the Pope a copy of Undertale. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uncle Toby. Did he enjoy it? I don't know. Oh, okay. I bet he didn't play it. Yeah. He might oh, not Oh, thank have. you. This is a, a very nice game. Uh, I'll put over here. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. I want to thank you for sharing who you are on this because, like, uh, like y you brought up a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of concepts. Some went over my head, I mean, I, and I admit it, but some I resonated with, if that makes sense. And, like, it gave me a lot of things to think about. I feel like I really know you a lot better. Yeah, same. Um, and that makes me happy because I like to know people better because I'm such an unfriendly person. That no, Sash. <laughs> See, people think I'm friendly. I'm actually a very unfriendly person. Um, you fooled me then, I gotta but, say. <laughs> 
but when I can get to know people better, then I can, you know, feel like, oh, we can, you know, be friendly. But anyway, so I would say this has been a great show. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to Translucidity, and I'd like to thank you, Tara, and, and you, Frasley, for joining me. Woo-hoo! Woo! Yeah! This podcast has been a production of Kitty Dream Studios. Meow. This show is brought to you by Dragon Powered Studio. Find more at dragonpoweredstudio.com. Thank <laughs> you.